Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. single bullet remains. A single bullet now has to account for the remaining seven wounds in Kennedy and Conley. But rather than admit to a conspiracy or investigate further, the Warren Commission chose to endorse the theory put forth by an ambitious junior counselor, Arlen Specter, one of the grossest lies ever forced on the American people. We've come to know it as the magic bullet theory. Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of the AI Movie Night podcast. I'm your host, Joe Simpson, and tonight we're going to be discussing the 1991 classic film, JFK. I'm lucky enough to be joined by two great guests to discuss this. Firstly, I'm joined by Tony Evans, sports writer and author of a couple of great Liverpool books. How are you, Tony? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks very much for joining me. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on it, mate. No, it'll be good fun. Um, I think we've got plenty to talk about tonight. Yeah, we, we, we we won't be short of opinions, will we? I'm also lucky enough to be joined by Martin Fitzgerald, who's a contributor to the Anfield Rap website and podcast, and he's also one half of the excellent Ruth and Martin's album club. How are you, Martin? I'm good. I'm good. Really good. Thanks very much for joining me, This podcast could literally last about 10 hours. Um, You could do that on your own, I mean, I've been... Yeah, I could, honestly. (laughs) I mean, the, the, the... I don't know what the time limit you have for it is, uh, probably about an hour, an hour, an hour and fifteen. I know we'll have to miss out some good stuff because yeah. of that, but uh, I'm sure we'll get a lot of really interesting views from you both in that time. All right, I'm just going to get straight into it because, as as you both know, it's such a such a rich film with so much in it. So I'm just going to dive straight in. Yeah, I'm going to start by uh, obviously it was released in 1991, almost 30 years after JFK was assassinated, and obviously now we're much later again. Why do you think the assassination provoked and still provokes so much interest so many years after it happened? And I'm going to start with you. Firstly, please, Martin. I think there's two reasons, really. I think I think at that time in Oliver Stone's career, he was kind of mining the 60s and 70s as his source material for the films that he was making. So he did Platoon, he did the Doors film. He did Born on the Fourth of July, and I think I think sort of Stone's own politics with regard to JFK, very much that he, like a lot of people in America, see 
the assassination of JFK as a wasted opportunity in terms of what happened to American politics after that. And the Vietnam War, um, you know, stuff in the 70s, Watergate and stuff like that. I think there is a, and I'll consider it a slightly flawed sense of people that think, and I think Oliver Stone is one of these people that thinks if JFK didn't get shot, then none of everything that happened subsequently would have happened. And I wouldn't have gone to Vietnam and all those people wouldn't have died and people wouldn't have such a distrust of politics. I think that's where he's coming from. And I think that's why he chose to do the film, because I think there's a lot of people like him that, that just see JFK as an opportunity to change something. And then and then they were robbed of that. Yeah. And I think also, of course, there's the entire mystery around what actually happened. I mean, I, I, I should probably say I've been, you know, I've been I've been sort of studying this for 25 years. I've been to Dallas a bunch of times. And I think part of the enduring, you know, appeal, if that's the right word, or something like this, is that very few people agree on everything. You know, there are some known facts. JFK died. Oswald got arrested. He got shot two days later. Apart from that, everything's kind of up for grabs. And I think that just makes for, you know, really great source material for a film because... It isn't a, a, a straightforward linear story where you're telling in a very clear way about a you know historical event. You are putting forward your own argument of what happened in that event. Mm-hmm. And I think he enjoyed doing that. Yeah, so, some excellent points there. I couldn't agree more. I think, uh, as you say, it, it's that the two two main strands, isn't it? It's like you know, on the one hand, you've got JFK, who for so many, and as you say, in particular, Oliver Stone represented this like beacon of hope uh, obviously cut down in, in his youth and, and you know relatively early into what what they hope will be you know a long presidential career I think it was two years in or something like that and obviously they were hoping to, to continue beyond that term and I think the combination of his youth and the fact that he did begin to make so many or at least start to make some inroads into doing so many things that were considered positive by the likes of Stone and many many people understandably i think as you said with him being so cruelly cut down it it was at that time where anything seemed possible like yourself i'm not sure how much he would have been able to follow up in that direction you know but but i suppose it's such a big loss that we never got to find out and obviously particularly for people in that country and yeah uh, and and you know i think the thing mm-hmm. that that just emphasizes that is that everything that happened after he got killed, with the exception of what Johnson did for civil rights in America, but most other stuff that happens after that is uniformly bad. It goes from Johnson, Vietnam War, to Martin Luther King getting assassinated, Robert Kennedy getting assassinated, and then on to Nixon and Kissinger. I mean, I think that I think that really, really kind of helped solidify this sense of. Um, you know, he was the opportunity, not actually because of anything hard and concrete that he did. It's just that what came afterwards was so awful. Yeah, 
great, great points, great points. What about yourself, Tony? What What are your thoughts on why this disinterest is so enduring? Well, I, I think Gavison says it in the film. It's a secret murder at the heart of the American dream. And mm-hmm. I think for Americans and, and for everyone in the world, because American is the, America is the beacon of democracy, the, the beacon of freedom, at least in its own idealized mind. This mm-hmm. is an amazing incident. You know, they, they've killed the president. For God's sake, they've killed the president. And if they can do that, they can do anything. And that, the, the, the sense of paranoia and, and anger and hopelessness that drives the, you know, through the film is amazing. And, you know, the, the other line that always jumped out at me was, you know, Oliver Stone obviously worked it into the, the movie, you know, to start a chain reaction of people looking for the truth. The truth is so important, especially in an event like this. And when this movie came out in the days between, before social media, Starting the chain reaction was much more difficult, and yet the the, the drive in Stone is just it it, it sets, sets a great creative conflict that you know sort of makes this this movie so good. But I mean that's the main thing. I mean I saw it for the first time, and uh, I was in a, a place called Rancho Cucamonga, and on the outskirts of, of LA, and it was during the just after the Gulf War. Well, you sort of during the whole Gulf conflict, people were driving around with bumper stickers which said "My country, right or wrong," and yet there were enough people going around who, who were existing with this knowledge that there was an awful wrong being committed in this country, and there needed to be questions asked and answered all this time on. And we may never get the answers, but that whole mood is what makes the the film so great. Forget the symbolism in many ways of what Kennedy did and might have done and LBJ didn't. The the essence of it, the, the, the cornerstone is they killed the president in front of everyone and no one's ever explained it. Or if they have explained it, and the Warren Commission, they've explained it with enough holes in that looks like Swiss cheese. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't agree more. It, as you say, it's that, that guilty secret and then it's compounded by the fact, as you say, this is a president killed on, on, on TV and, well, on, on obviously film, should I say. And this is a president who's killed. And then this investigation, which if you didn't know anything about in America's history, it would have, you know, the most thorough, detailed, you know, you know, obviously this is in an ideal world. And as you say, it was this shoddy covering up and, you know, everybody fighting to cover their own, you know, guilty secrets, or at least that's how it seems anyway. And it's like, you know, it's hard to reconcile that that could happen. I think that's part of why, as you say, it generated so much momentum, this film, because when when you see, you know, all the different layers of that onion and like every and obviously you, you two clearly read read into this a lot more than I have, but when you even do a, a little reading into it and you see the different layers, unlike a lot of sort of so-called conspiracy theories, normally in my experience what happens is as you start reading, you, you realise, oh, it's not as juicy or as, probably the wrong word, or as interesting as it first seemed, but in this, the more you read into it or look into it, the more the more layers of this cover-up and this, you know, more potential angles are uncovered. And it's just, as you say, so fascinating and such a, as you both said, such a fertile ground for a film. Um, Obviously, you've just mentioned, Tony, where you were when you first saw it. What about yourself, Martin? Where were you when you first saw it and what what impact did it have on you? Uh, I saw it in south-east London in a place called Beckenham. I saw it at the cinema there. 
Um, I'd already had my interest peaked with the Kennedy assassination a couple of years before during a history lesson at school where the teacher, you know, we'd, you know, we'd done 1066. We'd done everything in a very kind of, in a very factual, prescriptive way. This is exactly what happened. Learn those facts. And then it came to assassination of JFK. And what I loved about that lesson, what, what was the thing that really started it off for me, was that the history teacher, this guy that knew everything and he knew all the facts, said, I don't really know what happened. So it's over to you. You work out what happened. And, and, you know, you're, you're, you're 15 years old and you're like, OK, you've got Cuba, you've got Mafia, you've got, you've got Russia. This is this, that I found as a sort of lesson, something that really interested me. I think on a 25th anniversary, so 88, there was a documentary series on ITV called The Men Who Killed Kennedy, which was the first documentary series that showed those kind of figures behind the glassy knoll, which, which we now know as Badge Man, and it had shown some sort of photographic developments of what happened there. So for me, it was this thing where every couple of years, something would happen that would... That would kind of this, and in but at, at, at you know this point I didn't know about people like David Ferry or you know Guy Bannister. So then, then the Stone movie comes out in 1991, and I think I think I go watch it on the, on the day it comes out, and I, I don't think I blinked for like three hours. <laughs> it was even I, mean, I think the thing you have to say about JFK the, the film is whether you think it's factually accurate, and there, there are some issues with it, whether you even agree with its um, conclusions. If you take it as a piece, as just a piece of cinema, I mean, it really, really moves. For a film that, that takes three hours, it never feels like that. It's edited in such a way that it just keeps on. Sort of, I mean, even the sort of court scene at the end where he does his summing up, I think that's like a 40-minute speech. But it just doesn't, and at no point does the film drag at any point. And you have to recognise that as a piece of cinema. So I remember watching it, and I think I think I went back in, paid again, and watched it again. <laughs> and it was all this new information. It was around this point that I started buying books on the subject because of that film. And, and also there's just a lot of stuff in the press at the time. I mean, the film was being attacked kind of six months before it even got released which I found interesting. There were people just saying, this is just awful. I thought, I can't ever remember any film being that criticised by people that, who hadn't even seen it. That's a great point. I think someone... We were just disgusted really, at the idea of it. Yeah. No, very good, very good points there. I think uh, someone even released, like, the script or at least the previous version of the script. And, you know, I know Costner in particular was really really saddened by that, you know, I think he said something like, you know, that the, the, the closing closing statements that you, you mentioned, he wanted people to come to that, you know, without having, without recently having heard it or read it or, or anything like that. And he said, obviously, that's spoilt it for so many people. And it is, it's really sad that that, that should happen. And the criticism they had before people had even seen it is just uh, out of line, really. In many respects, actually, that, that mm-hmm. uh, worked better on the film because the, 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 the cold, dry script, the written word, doesn't give you any indication of what this movie's going to be like. Because the, mass, the, 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 the genius of, of Stone and this and his editors is that 
a lot of the stuff there is long explanations of situations. Yeah. And when you read them on the page, you think, oh, yeah, how's this going to work? Now, when they actually got the, got, got the film together, the intercut, you know, sort of black and white um, newspapers, uh, you know, real film, colour shots, and they keep moving at such a pace, you know, jumping from place to place, that they, um, that they, they keep the momentum going, even in what should be some of the driest sections of the film. And then in other bits, I mean, for example, one of the, the greatest scenes is, uh, for me is, is, is uh, X's uh, oh. reason why this all happens. And it's got, there's music behind it, but it's got a driven, a sort of driven rhythm and poetry about it that makes it mesmerising. Again, doing the cuts, and it's two men sitting on a bench talking about something, <laughs> and it just the, 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 you're driven on. You, it's an exciting scene. You you get excited by the rhythm of the voices, by the music in the back of the cuts, and and this was what what could have been in other filmmakers' hands a really flat, wordy piece turned into one of these, you know, Martin said, mesmer visual and, and sort of um, experiences where you just, you don't know where you're going next with it. And you're bombarded with information, but there's a clarity of thought in it as well that you're never, ever confused. And I think when people saw it after seeing the script, they just, they just couldn't believe what they were seeing. That, that's a, a really good point there, and I think uh, you've hit on a, a really good point about, uh, obviously, firstly, the editing. I'm not sure if I've ever seen a, a film that's been edited better than that. I think won the Oscar for, for, for editing that year and cinematography, and it was probably really unlucky. It came up against uh, Silence of the Lambs, otherwise I think it might have might have cleaned up in the Oscars. And would you say in the script... It's outstanding, but as you say, it's it's very understandably it's exposition heavy, and I think he said himself he was very aware of that, and he said what he had to do as well as the editing to bring it to to life. Particularly, not always because obviously some of it would just work no matter what. It's that good a script, but he said for some of the maybe drier bits, he said he needed a fantastic cast, and obviously the cast he did get was just sensational, you know, one of the all-time great casts and, you know, a, a lot of leading men in there who, who are doing, you know, really small roles, but, you know, knocking them right out of the park. And I think it was only because the script was that good that you could get that calibre of, of acting talent to do these different roles. And as you say, it really did bring it, bring it fully to life in a, in, a, in a fantastic way. That's, you know, as you say, mes- mesmerising, really. So I think just 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 to add to that, mm-hmm. just yeah, the the sort of other thing mm-hmm. that you always have to remind yourself when you're watching it is, you know, despite the fast editing and the cinematography and and and, and all of those which would be great in any other film, is that this is by and large a true story, mm-hmm. and you have to you have to remind yourself of that. You have to think, hey, this is this this actually happened. This bit here that they're showing as a Puda film, that's the actual film. And, and, and it was really a sort of key part of JFK that for a lot of people, it was the first time for a particular generation that they saw that film. And I remember seeing that part in the cinema and people, people were gasping when they see his head go you know, back and to the left. And, mm-hmm. and so, so it's, the, it's all of the great... Sort of tricks that any director has, you know, under their bonnet, but he's then mixed this up with a true story, 
And you can't help but sit there if you're sort of new to it, going, Jesus, I can't, I can't believe what I'm watching here. This, this is, this is, this is, <laughs> and, and a sort of way that he mixes it with documentary footage and, as Tony said, newspapers. It just reinforces all the time that you're being told, by and large, a, a you know, true story. Yeah, great point. That I mean, speaking for myself, I mean, when I saw it for the first time, like yourselves, I was blown away, but. I didn't realise at the time quite how much of it was true. And as you say, the footage and some of the photos even of Kennedy, I didn't realise quite how much of it was real and, and uh, the, the real footage. And also, I suppose that's a testament to how good some of the other footage is in there as well. And also because most films wouldn't have that type of thing. And, and also things like they really shot on Dealey Plaza and things like that, it, you know, in the book depository as well. You know, I think there was one shot from the sixth floor and a lot of it was filmed from the seventh. And it's like, you know, it, it is so authentic in so many ways. And as you say, you do have to remind yourself, this isn't like, you know, a great thriller that someone's came up with. It's a real story, the vast majority of it anyway. And it's like, it, it's just mind blowing that, 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 that all that's true, really. Obviously, I know there's a lot of scenes to, to look at. There's so many memorable scenes in this film, so I'm going to get right into them now. Um, obviously, we may miss the odd one because everyone's got the favourites and that, so feel free if, if there's any others that, that you think of that you want to mention, feel free to go back to them or whatnot. Um, the first one we're going to look at is um, a pivotal scene in the film. It's where, um, where obviously, Garrison gets that flight with Senator Long and they have that conversation that really lights a fire under under Garrison. So I'll start with you on this, please, Tony. Well, I mean, for me, I think one of the central things about the film and it is, is Cosner's role, Cosner's um, persona. I mean, he always struck me as being... He's not the most charismatic of act, act, actors, he's, but he's very, very solid. And I think in, in this scene kind of sums him up. He he almost embodies decent America. You know, he's, yeah. he's you know he's, he's just good looking enough. He's just articulate enough. He's not all the charisma in the film comes from the support and cast around him. And he's like a, a, a rock of probably the least charismatic central figure. You know, in any movie, even even during the speech of, 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 of like of this sort, even during the, the the long courtroom speech at the end, with all this, there was something so solid about him. And there, you can see, you can almost see when he's sitting next to Long, you can see his brain beginning to work. You can see the thought processes, and you can see the effect that has an undermining this the solidity of him. And I think, I I, I think in, in many ways he is the cornerstone of the film and then that it set it, the agenda is set very early on in it and in scenes like this and sort of all the sort of as i say all the charisma operates around him but he's almost like everything you'd want an upstanding american to be and he's moving in that one direction all the time and this that scene pushes him there but again i mean the the, the thing it does uh it really undermines his sense of self and his sense of being and the sense of what he was trying to do. So I think, I mean, it, it, to me, it, it's one of the favorite, my favorite scenes in it. But I, I was going to say, I can't take my eyes off Cosner, but as I say, it, it always strikes me how, how little movie star 
he projects in it, you know, because you kind of expect that. And I'm probably not making very much sense here. I'm not articulating well, very well. But 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 he, he's he's almost he's he's the solid core at the heart of the movie and 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 the solid core at the heart of America. That no matter what's what's gone on, there there is the this essential decency and it's embodied in, in him. I think nowhere better than that scene. Yeah, no, no I, I I totally get what you're saying there. Um, more than charisma, there's like a, a quiet intelligence, I think Oliver Stone called it, and uh, an integrity. I think Oliver mm. Stone compared them to James Stewart. Obviously, I'm not saying he's, he's that calibre of star, but I can see where he's coming from in this type of role. And he, he was like the anchor that the others could play off. And I think it really needed that because otherwise... I think you need that sort of solid base at the heart of the film to to sort of help you make sense of everybody else and everything else that was happening. So, no, I couldn't agree more there. What about yourself, Martin? What are your thoughts on uh, Costner in the Garrison role and also this scene with Senator Long? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I mean, I think it's a it's a really good example of how clever Stone was with his casting because this is a conversation that takes place three years after the assassination. Mm-hmm. And all that we know is that it's just a senator on a plane. And the scene doesn't last longer than five minutes. And, you know, Stone could have got anyone to play that senator. It's a five-minute role in the film, if that. But by getting that, that character played by Walter Matthau, because you know Walter Matthau, you know it has an authority in what he's saying. And you know that you start to trust him. And he does this throughout the film with the people that he really wants you to trust. People like Jack Lemmon, people like Donald Sutherland. He brings those people in because they've achieved some kind of stature in your mind as a viewer where you go, I'm going to take these people seriously. And the people who are not of that stature, like Kevin Bacon, got more problems with their testimony, people like like John Candy, who we're going to, you know, sure we're going to get to. They get used in a different way, and also Tommy Lee Jones, because he's a fairly dark character. And I think what he's doing there by putting, you know, Walter Matthau there is he's saying that this is a normal guy, this is a regular guy that you trust and you respect, and he's sitting here three years later saying he's got doubts about this assassination and what the one commission came up with, and he's also not just any guy, he's a senator. So you know he knows people and that he he is in a position in government, you know, rather than just a lay person. And then he makes the other guy that you that you have to trust in the film, Garrison, he then sort of wakes him up. And you get this sense throughout the film that Garrison spends the first half of the film waking up. And he keeps on bumping into these people that we recognise and who are only used for, you know, kind of five, six minutes here and there. These people just come round throughout the whole film, kind of waking Garrison up. And as the audience, you're watching that thinking, well, hang on a minute, he's, he's now been told by, he's been told this by Jack Lemmon, he's been told this by Walter Matthau. <laughs> Something's going on here. You know, these are people that I know and I trust, and they're, and they're old guys and, and they're steady. You know, they're not the people that you see playing baddies in films typically the people that i trust i think it's really clever the way he does that throughout the film 
Yeah, that, that that is a brilliant point. You're right. I suppose, as you say, these characters, they don't have time for you to make up your mind about them. So if you put someone in with that gravitas and that sort of inherent trust you have with these type of, you know, you know, legendary actors like Matau and Lemon, you instantly trust them, as you say, that bit more. And then if they have these doubts, as, as Matt out has many, many grave doubts about the, the Warren Report, you instantly take that as meaning something and you instantly give that a real mm. weight and merit. And obviously, and the same's happening with the characters themselves. You know, I imagine there's a lot of people who, if it had been on that flight, would have raised these issues. Gallison might have dismissed them because, as you say, he was, he was almost asleep in that regard previously. You know, he'd sort of... He took a face value, at least in the film, when uh, Ferry was released by the FBI. I think he said something like, you know, uh, they must know something we don't. And he just lets it go. You know, he's done his job. And, you know, maybe, you know, you could argue naively in, in the film, at least. And he just lets it go. Whereas once mm. Senator Long raises his concerns and he, he actually thinks about it. And what I like, and it's, it tells you a lot about that character as well. A lot of people would. Just have that conversation, think, well, it's nothing to do with me, it's being dealt with elsewhere, and that'd be the end of it, it'd just be a conversation on the plane. But he goes home and he gets, you know, this massive, massive report and really starts to do his homework and find all the flaws in it. And obviously, then that that becomes almost obsessional for him, like, throughout the film then. Um, One of the things I've always found interesting is that Mm -hmm. the people that play his investigative team who are on the screen for far longer are by and large unestablished actors that you don't know yeah. and they almost represent the sort of general public that Costner's now trying to convince after he's spoken to these other people for a much much shorter amount of time that you all know I've always found that an interesting dynamic that he does in the film that there's a bunch of people in the film that sort of work in his office you just don't know their names as actors at all you know there's you know some of them i've only ever seen appear in this film and they're in the film way longer than people like jack lemon and i think i think he does that because what what he's then trying to do is to position you know costner as the person that you then trust imparting this information to all these other people who you just don't know i i couldn't agree more there it's like he's trying to they they have to sort of earn your respect or your trust, and you know I think there's a bit of doubt uh, at least over one one of those characters on his team over you know what 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 he's doing throughout it and what way he's going to go, and I think you're right if that had been maybe someone like Jack Lemon or someone, you would have it in your head that he'll turn out to do the right thing or he'll turn out to be good. So there's more question marks over them because they don't have this history with us. That you know I think. At least one of them was a stage actor, and a couple of them it was one of their earliest roles. So now that's a really good point. That I'm now going to look at uh, that essentially Garrison's meetings following this and following his research with Jack Martin and Dean Andrews, and and what what 
you know, his growing realisation of how big and dangerous this investigation could be for him. I'm going to go to you for this one first, Tony, please. It's, I, I think Martin made a brilliant point earlier on that the first half of the film is all about this kind of awakening and the realisation and, you know, it's um, sort of, you know, being part of the, the process of this, you know, and, um, and so I think it's, these and these scenes are very, very carefully the rhythm of the film, the place in 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 the right situations to just push on the sort of the the, the dramatic tension, you know. I think it's um, mm-hmm. and I think that that one in particular with, I mean, you, you know, you've got um, the Jack Lemmon character, you know, and you who's you know sort of innately sort of trustworthy but panicked and scared, and it just sets off all these these sort of alarm bells going all the way through and i think one of the as i say before martin's made the point about trust and the actors and use it but there's almost what stone wants you to do is he wants you to follow the thought process and to become you know even though we know what's going to happen at the end of this film the way of building the dramatic tension is to build your awareness as you go along in the same way as their awareness is going and their knowledge is going and and he works this really really well I mean, there, there might have been in other films where you know it's sort of it's you, you don't know where you're going there might it, it might have been easy to lose especially such a long film to lose the the the, the, the watcher in in this process but this this is a a great example of of how he doesn't and um, and I, I just think there's, there's scenes like this all the way through, which are just a vital moments, which kind of jolt you. And yeah. and I think I think that is one of the great the the, the great beauties of the whole uh, beauty of the whole film, really. I think, uh, as you say, it, it sort of from prior to this, it sort of it, it, it he's he's embarking on this investigation, but when he meets. The next two characters, you know, Jack Martin and Dean Andrews, it it then injects a bit of um, peril really into it. You know, it, it's clear how if the, these people are so scared that even when he's threatening them with the law and perjury and all his different tactics to try and make them tell him what he wants to know, you know, it, it means almost nothing to them because they're so scared of 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 what else is well, out the, there. Nothing. The, sorry. The terror's palpable in them, you know, and it's uh, and I say that the, the realization is, you know, it's, uh, that each each step he goes further forward, it's getting deeper and more dangerous. Yeah, yeah, and and I think because you see that that fear in them, as you say, and you see him start to acknowledge as the film goes on that, that it's it's dangerous for him, although he never gets to to the stage there that you know he he's such a strong character, but. It 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 also says to you as the the, the viewer, you know, because it's very easy to think, and I've definitely been guilty of, of naivety in that type of area myself in the past, you know, to underestimate how dangerous that type of thing can be in a country like America, because we're naturally, you know, brought up to think you're safe somewhere like that, or at least safe from the powers that be. But you see in this film, and obviously reading about it, that. Obviously, that isn't necessarily the case, and in, in this film, it, it definitely isn't the case. What about yourself, Martin? What do you think of those those two meetings, and any thoughts about them? Yeah, I think I think what he does 
in those two scenes, it's actually very similar to the point Tony made about the Mr. X scene, is, is he just makes these conversations you know, utterly dramatic. So if if you if you look at one with Jack Lemon, it's on a racetrack that keeps cutting to his close up of a horse that's that's, you know, going around the track and you can hear its hooves and they get louder and louder. There's a guy just sitting off behind from Jack Lemon with, you know, sunglasses and a hat and he's obviously probably nothing but he's not supposed to think, Jesus, you know, they're being watched. And again, you know, anyone else would have would have done that. It's just a conversation in, you know, Jack Lemon's office or something like that. And he's thought, well, I'm going to do this here. I'm going to frame it like this. And that's how I'm going to make it dramatic. And the way he does the Dean Andrews one is he's a kind of comic character. But as a scene goes on, the, 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 the sort of camera focuses more and more on his cigarette smoking, the fact he's starting to sweat, the fact that he's losing his cool, and he's supposed to be really, really cool. And he has, has all of these fantastic phases that he drops in that <laughs> scene. It's like the sort of comic relief of the film, really. <laughs> but then, by getting pushed by Garrison, he starts to unravel. And again, the the way that Stone has done that by presenting this sort of farcical sort of hip lawyer who then gets taken apart over lunch to the point where he's the least cool guy in the room. Mm-hmm. It's just a really, really clever way of doing those scenes. When, as, as you know, Tony said, if you'd have read that on a piece of paper, well, it's just a conversation between two guys. But the way that Stone does it is is totally, you know, sort of cinematic. And all the time, these are people that, that, you know, Garrison knows, you know, he knows the Jack Lemmon character. He got, he, the day he, you know, called his office on the night of the assassination to report getting pistol with. He knows Dean Andrews. Mm. These are people that, that he's kind of reading and he knows he's being lied to. And I mean, the, the, and the, the cast and both of them are superb because you wouldn't, I mean, if I was casting those two characters, I wouldn't necessarily go that way with either of them. Great, great point there. Yeah, particularly uh, uh, John Candy in particular. You know, you you know, you, you wouldn't have picked him for that role at all, and it it, it works so well. And funnily enough, mm. so, something that adds to it is uh, Stone said that John Candy actually was did feel like a fish out of water with all these serious actors, and and was intimidated being on on a, in a film with those type of people. And he said a lot of the sort of sweating and things like that was was genuinely how he was because he, he felt so nervous. And obviously that really helps. As Martin said, he's progressively getting more nervous from being this, you know, sort of cool guy at the start. He's getting more more and more nervous as, as Garrison increases that pressure. And I think both, both sort of meetings sort of end in a similar way with both characters essentially saying to him, you know, either directly or indirectly, you know, my life will be in danger if I give you what you want. And, and, and I think too, too easygoing characters. Actors who are renowned for yeah. playing easygoing characters or happy-go-lucky, yeah. putting yeah. them on the spot. And, and that it just, as I say, it, it, it heightens Garrison's sense of, uh, of fear and, and drives the, the, the movie on. 
yeah, no, couldn't couldn't agree more with you both. I'm now going to look at one of my favourite scenes, uh, the the prison meeting with uh, Willie O'Keefe. I'm going to start with you on, on this, please, Martin. Yeah, I think it's just another one of those scenes that you know it's coming and you look forward to it because again, he's 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 a he's a sort of he's a kind of funny guy in it. He's um, yeah, he you know kind of you know makes references to the fact that. You know, him and Garrison should hook up when he gets out of here. <laughs> He's a good-looking guy. Because <laughs> you, you, the, the sort of film can't be in, entirely within the mind of someone trying to unravel a conspiracy because that would just weigh you down. But obviously, he's an important, you know, character, Willie O'Keefe. He's actually based on a guy called Perry Russo, I think, which is, which is I think some sort of legal reason they had to change his name in the film. But he's one of the few people that that says that, that he, he can connect Oswald and, and Shaw and Fed. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market and they were talking about the assassination. And this is one of the people that, that you know, Garrison meets that he doesn't know. I think I'm right in saying. So he's, he's, he's kind of now coming out of his circle. And, of course, what, you're, what, what I think the film does well is, you know, he's going to see a convict. It would be our natural inclination not to believe him. But because because he's in prison and 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 I think what sort of Bacon does really well is he's so sure of what he's saying. He he, he has that the the sort of bit about they're gonna they're gonna bring fascism back, and you think well this is just an honest guy. This is just an either nutcase, but he's an honest guy, and you immediately believe what he's saying because he's prepared to proposition Garrison. He's prepared. <laughs> to announce his love for fascism, you think. And, and also the fact that he's in prison anyway, you kind of have the sense of, I think he says this in, 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 in the scene, what have I got to lose? Mm, yeah. What have I got to lose by telling the truth? I'm already in here. Yeah. And I, I, I think the other thing is, 
it, it, I mean, I, I, I think I love Kevin Bacon, and I love the way he plays that scene. And there, there is that, that sense, because Merton, you got there just before me, he, he's got, he gives that aura of someone with nothing to lose, but also gives a window for Garrison, who's very straight, straight-faced, straight-laced, and normal, a window into another side of the world. You know, he threw the looking glass for Garrison. And there's, you, you get that, you can almost feel Cosner sort of, not quite shrinking away, but, you know, being disturbed, <laughs> very disturbed by this whole exchange. And I think it's, a, it, it, it's I, I think, you know, Bacon's vignette is one of the best in the film because, as you said, Martin, it's funny, it's disturbing, and it's, um, it's just beautifully acted. Yeah, good. Great, I, think, great I think it's just also refreshing that he just isn't, he isn't in any way, shape or form camp. Or anything he he sort of he's 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 he he adheres to no homosexual stereotype whatsoever. This is this is this is, and I think it's really it's really refreshing because even in 1991, you know there was there was you know still depictions of homosexuality. Yep. In films that were a little bit limp-wristed, and actually there's a lot of homosexuals within this film, and. They're anything but limp-wristed. They're all, yeah. you know, they're all a bunch of psychopaths, basically. He's all the more believable for that as well, isn't he? You know, because they don't put any stereotype on him or, you know, they they don't make him camp or anything. He's all the more believable as a character. This is just who he is. He's just a man who is gay. He's not a gay man. And, and I think that was done so so well in the film, and I think it it sort of turned um, it turned Bacon's career around. Uh, from what I've read, he was like um, stuck in a sort of he'd done he he'd done leading roles, and once he'd done that, he had the idea that he had to stay in them. And obviously, the leading roles he was getting were getting pro- progressively worse in the films he was appearing in. And his agent basically said, "When you were on stage, you used to do loads of great character acting. Why don't you try that?" And obviously. He took this role, and then his career was transformed, and he got great character parts in the likes of Apollo 13 and Sleepers and Mystic River, and you know, uh, uh, and he, obviously, uh, as we've all said, he was so good in in this one part, and you know, funny, you know, charismatic, everything in, in that one role, and I like the fact as well that like uh, the way it, it was done in in the film, he was convincing them both. He was really convincing, and you could see they were both thinking, you know, this could be really great. He could be a great witness here, despite the fact that he's a prisoner, and that would count against him. He was really convincing until that last bit where he sort of went too far, and then, as you say, Martin, although that made him more believable that he was telling the truth. I think they both shared a look, uh, Garrison and his uh, investigator, that said, you know, if this was in court, he would have undermined all the good stuff he'd said. So I, I think it was great the way the rug was sort of pulled under them uh, at the very end of that meeting. I think um, I think this, this is one of the things that, that happens to Garrison throughout the film, is that, as you know, as, as was, I think it was Tony said it earlier, that he's a very straight guy. And he's got his wife and his kids and his, his sort of picket fence house. And he's now starting to meet a bunch of people that are not really his scene, but he needs these people. He needs these people to help put this case together. And he's trying to work out which are the ones he can trust, which are the ones that he can't trust. Of course, there's, a, there's that 
you know, really great part that happens in the trial where he thinks he's got this great witness and then the witness <laughs> turns out to um, you know, claim that he'd been hypnotized by the by the government and that he took his mm. daughter's fingerprints um, you know, before she went to university so he could make sure it was a the, the you know same daughter when he comes back so, and so throughout Garrison has this there's that great part in that scene when he he's just he just feel for Garrison because he's like oh for fuck's sake what did you say that for you made me look an idiot but he needs these people because if you are to believe the conspiracy that he's putting together it's by a bunch of pretty left field characters of which Oswald would would have been probably you know probably the weirdest and Garrison's now having to try and get and He's sort of moved away from people like Martin and Candy. He's now trying to get into that world and and try and work these people out, which is difficult at the best of times, I would imagine. I'm now going to look at a different kind of meeting, I suppose, here with, with Clay Shaw. I'm going to start with you on this one, please. Tony, your thoughts on that meeting? Well, I mean, the th- the thing about Clay Shaw is he's, he's, you know, he's the man who's going to come to court. He's the man who it's all going to be focused on. And he's, he radiates the whole, he radiates a sort of an American evil. You know, he's, 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 he's got that, you know, where he's a great counterpoint to Cosner's decency. Clay Shore is uh, more than anyone else. You know, there's sleaze bags in the film. There's, um, you know, sort of the, 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 there's gay men making pass at him. But more than anything, it's the the whole scene with Clay Shore is 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 confrontation with, you know, the, the despicable side of America, and um, you know, in 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 terms of acting styles, it, you know, it's just it's just a fantastic contrast. And um, again, it's one of those pieces of casting that couldn't have been done any better. You know, it's um, you, you know Tommy Lee, Tommy Lee Jones is just a, he's got that rugged but blank, sort of fearsomely blank, sort of exterior, and he, you know, the, the, the menace that's coming from, and I, I just think it's again the genius of the casting in it is to pitch these two. These two opposites against each other, as as symbols of of the, the country and the, the symbols of of you know the, the American dream and its its uh, different parts. And I just think uh, it's just so wonderfully done. Yeah, no, c- couldn't agree more. It, it reminds me of you know the saying, uh, "Styles make fights," uh, and I think mm-hmm. those two styles, Costner's style and Tommy Lee Jones's in these characters, sort of. The, the the contrast between them, as you say, is so compelling to watch. It, it, it's it's fantastic, really, to see them. And as you say, the casting throughout the film is brilliant. I think he said 99% of the time he got exactly who he wants uh, for the roles, and I think that really shows in, in this one. Um, um, what about your thoughts on on this meeting, uh, Martin? Yeah, I, I I think I think within the film, you know, Tommy Lee Jones kind of represents a, 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 a you know kind of pure power and it, and it is noticeable that he's the only one that when he's questioned by Garrison he doesn't lose his call in any way shape or form which mm. makes you which makes you as a viewer just really 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 wary of him he's really polite he 
you know, he, he even in amongst that questioning, he, you know, gives his best wishes to Garrison's family. And you think, where was everyone else who's been put under this spot? You know, you've got the scene with David Ferry where his, where his wig starts to fall down. You know, we talked about John Candy. Here's a guy who you know is evil, but he's so powerful. In, 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 in a, in a, not in an obvious way where he holds a title, but you just know that he knows he's untouchable. And he walks into that Listen, meeting knowing that. You, you, you've just hit the nail on there, there Martin. The sense of security he's got is you know is so it's so confident and so solid and you know in in a, in a different way Costner has his own sense of security that's been constantly undermined all the way through it and and that meeting is as i say the two i see it as the two disparate parts of the american dream the the, the power the corrupt power and the and the urge to the urge to Fight the corrupt power. The urge for decency, and never in the film is it more is it more pronounced than in that scene. Yeah, no, great points by you both. I think as you both touched on, it's it's how calm Clay is and and his arrogance and and and, and that calmness only confirms Garrison's suspicions. Like 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 us, the viewers, you know, seeing how calm he is under this question and how unruffled and it, it, it just so uh, you, you know he's he's a dodgy character with a lot of power and you know you, you can tell because he's just it doesn't bother him at all it, he's just totally unruffled unlike the other characters who, who who feel a lot more threatened by by the situation you can tell this guy doesn't feel threatened at all and I think Martin touched on it as well. It, 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 he he almost has, and it, 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 as we said, it needed some comic relief in, in amongst it. And he brings some of it, I think, with that sort of, if this is even a thing, rude politeness. You know, hmm. he, he he's polite to wind them, wind them up, isn't he? He wants to rub them up the wrong way, and he knows that this politeness will do it, and it really works. He, he, he rattles Garrison a bit, doesn't he? No, without um, a doubt. Now, I'm aware you, you've got to go, Tony. I don't want to keep you and put you in an awkward position. Uh, so I'm just going to uh, thank you for joining us. I know you've got to go, and it's been great to hear your thoughts. So uh, have a nice night. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, I'm leaving you more than good hands with Martin because he's, he knows more about the subject than I could ever know. And uh, the only thing I'm a bit disappointed, I, I would have loved okay. to have talked at length uh, about Ferry's priest speech oh. and that, you know, it's one of the great, but I'll tell you what, if you ever want anyone to tell you about the trial scene at the end, Martin's your man, so I'll be listening oh. to it and um, I can't wait to hear it. Oh, thanks for joining us, mate. Take care. See you soon, chaps. Bye. Yeah. Thanks so much to Tony for joining us. Obviously, he had to leave. Uh, he had the work tonight. Uh, enjoyed hearing his thoughts and uh, look forward to having him on again in future. I'm now going to look at uh, the scene where David Ferry, his phone call after the investigation goes public and his panic in the hotel. What were your thoughts on this scene, Martin? <laughs> I mean, it's a phone call, right? So it yeah. shouldn't be... As it is exciting and dramatic, <laughs> you know, as it is. But it's, I think, I think the performance by Pesci, I mean, there's so many actors, I, mean, I wouldn't, I'd have no idea how you would nominate just one of these people for best supporting actor. Because I think the performance by Pesci in this film is, it just has everything. 
It has it has humour. Then you see the black and white shots where he's training out in Florida, and he looks like a like a hardcore nutcase. <laughs> he's also playing a gay man. He is at some time, you know, he's friendly to the people that he needs to be friendly with, and then he turns, and he's just a, a sort of manic kind of creation that is sort of put together really I think by Pe- I mean, he was an odd character David Ferry anyway if you see any pictures of the real David Ferry he's an odd looking guy but somehow you know Pesci puts together this performance which makes you think that David Ferry is capable of anything literally anything and I think obviously that scene when he finds out that this is going to go public and he's a, he's on a slightly lower rung of the food chain than people like Shaw means that he starts to panic and he he you know he now feels the heat that everyone else has started to feel you know throughout the film yeah and it, but it's it, just a it, great piece of acting it is it is you're right it's a it's like a hundred miles an hour, isn't it, at times? And then it'll slow right down for certain sections. And it, it just, it is, it's just, it's just breathtaking, really. I think I remember reading Stone said that when, when doing it, he knew he had to get it in the first couple of takes because he just said there'd be nothing, Pesci would have nothing left to give because of the type of scene it was and how much emotion and panic and paranoia and fear and, you know, he, he knew he had to get it in the first couple of takes, and you know, what the the performance, as you say, by Pesci is just is just fantastic in, in in so many different ways. And I suppose that that leads us on to another great performance. Although it's only you know for for one scene in the film, it, it it's so good by uh, Donald Sutherland as X. What what are your thoughts on that performance, Mark? I th- I think I think. The, the the sort of part this plays in the film is you know throughout the film you have this sense of, of sort of hidden power there isn't there isn't power that you know as you know politicians or you know kind of government officials there's this sense of hidden power which you know that sort of Clay Shaw represents and then and then. And then you get a sense of it from the ex character, but from the other side, and you get the sense with the Sutherland character that well, he lives in the same kind of world as Shaw. He's moving in the, the, those circles. You know, he's actually based on a you know real life character called called a Fletcher um, Trouty. He's a slightly odd guy, but at the time he you know he if you think that you know X says in that film. Is absolutely true. He was an Air Force colonel. He was sent out to New Zealand on a pointless exercise. And because he has that gravitas, you know, Sutherland, you do now get the sense, there's so many great lines in, in that, but you do now get the sense of here's someone coming to his aid. Here's someone coming. If you're on the right lines, you know, I can't tell you the whole story. I can piece bits together. But you've got to do it on your own. But you know you're getting further than, than any, all, and all that, and you get this sense of okay, this is the confirmation that Garrison needs. But tragically, he can't he can't testify or anything 
because he's part of that hidden power that doesn't do things like stand up in court and talk about this. And so, so on the one hand, he, he gets the vindication that he's along the right lines, but he also, I think, starts to realise that this is beyond him. There's, there's not much he can do here because even the people that want to help him can't come out from the shadows to do that. It's a really great scene. Again, the setting, the, it's, in, it's in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, you've got the various, you know, kind of memorials around. You know, I've been, I've been to that part of Washington and it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a really, really well played scene where Sutherland does exactly what you want Donald Sutherland to do in that scene perfectly. Yeah, I, th- I think you've summed that up perfectly. To be honest, it's uh, it, it it really is mesmeric that scene, and uh, I think that part of me thinks it it could have been laughable in a way. You know, this this outsider who knows exactly what's going on coming to meet him and tell him everything that's going on and pulling back the curtain in the wrong hands. I think that could have gone badly wrong and felt bad felt unrealistic even though it was you know largely based in truth as you say i think it could have felt it could have damaged the film but it was done so well by sutherland and so believable and with that gravitas that you know it, it just worked and it you know it's one you know it's it's an iconic scene isn't it it's one of them scenes mm. that you know it, particularly for, for for an actor just coming into a film for one scene to be that good and yeah. that memorable yeah. It, it, it's hard to believe, really. And funnily enough, I think that his first choice, Stone's first choice for that, was Marlon Brando. You know, believe it or not. But and it's not really? often I'll say this because I love Brando, but no one could have done that better than Sutherland. And apparently, he, it was I think it was about ten or twelve pages of script, and he said he had to memorize it all so well that he could do it and be interrupted and then go straight back into the 10 pages of dialogue as if it was a, a thought he was actually having his life, you know, in real life. And um, I just think, it, you know, one of the best one-scene performances I've ever seen in a film and, you know, just fantastic script and fantastic performance by uh, Sublin. Mm. You, 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 I mean, in, in some respects, you almost feel sorry for Costner yeah. because... He's the one constant throughout the film. He keeps coming <laughs> up against these incredible cameos. Yeah. And he must walk away from each scene. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I've that... just seen John Candy do that. And now, you know, Bacon's done this on me. I've just, I've just had Lemon. I think the thing about the film now, looking, looking back on it, 2015, is you really have to remember where Kevin Costner was in his career at that time. He was, he was super hot. And he yeah. was he was like a kind of Gary Cooper, James Stewart, everyman figure. You know, he'd done The Untouchables, which is, I think is a great film. Couldn't agree more. Um, he, he hadn't really done anything terrible, I don't think, at this point. He hadn't done the whole Waterworld <laughs> stuff. And he hadn't done The Bodyguard, you know. He did like, he did like No Way Out. Um, I don't think he'd done Darcy Wolves at this stage, had he? Um, no, I think you're right. I don't think he had. So, so he at the time, the sort of Kevin Costner that we know now, which is I'm not sure how well regarded he, you know, he is, 
But at the time, I, I, I very much remember him as a he was he was a real kind of A list star. And I think I think what what happened in the film is that other people like Tommy Lee James and Jane Pesci, you know, even to a certain extent Bacon, you know, kind of went on. And you look back at it now and you go, wow, it was just, you know, Tommy Lee James, Joe Pesci. Whereas in the, at the time of the film, they were, they were relatively unknown. And, and actually, Costner was the big star. Yeah. Obviously, another iconic scene, and, you know, I would say probably the best court scene I've ever seen, or it's at least up there out of any film, is, is, the, is the actual trial in this. What, what are your thoughts on, on the trial, Martin? Uh, I think, it's, it's, I think it's the, the sort of first thing to say about the trial, is as we've said, you know, Costner as as an actor, great cameos mm-hmm. that are almost trying to act him off the screen. And you know, some of them are succeeding. You know, you got Sutherland one, you got you got Ferry, John Candy, and this and this is his moment as an actor where no one's really going to interrupt him, and he now gets the things for himself. And and he, he is whatever anyone says about Kevin Costner. Whether, whether you like him or not, or you know whatever you think about his subsequent career, what he did, well, what he does in this courtroom scene is absolutely astonishing. Um, I've no idea how 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 long it took, how long it took him to learn all of the lines, and, and, but it's it's just an astonishing one man performance that you can almost see the people in the courtroom are. Are you know so taken by by sort of what he's doing, you know, as a lawyer and as an actor that they're sort of sitting there in sort of stunned silence. Even the be even the prosecution because he's he's that good in 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 the whole the whole courtroom scene. He's absolutely incredible, passionate, puts over a very concise overview of the issues with the assassination mm-hmm. in terms of. The issues with the official explanation. It's a bit weird as a court scene because it's not, it isn't really a court scene where he tries to prosecute Clay Shaw. Clay Shaw's hardly mentioned through it. It's almost like he's brought in just at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, what the, what the scene does is it tries to throw doubt really on Lee Harvey Oswald being the sole assassin. And it's almost like he's defending Lee Harvey Oswald rather than prosecuting Clay Shaw. And he does a really, really good job. There's loads of, you know, iconic scenes that sort of back and to the left. As I say, the bit when he, when he, when he shows us through the film is, is, a, is a really shocking thing. You know, there's, you know, people that I know that, you know, until recently hadn't seen us through the film and you show it to them. And it is this, you know, gasp. Um, so to have that within there and you just add to the drama and it has all the inherent drama of a courtroom scene which you always get in you know all scenes like that where you have a protagonist you have an argument and they're trying to win a case and you don't and I think what you don't know at this point is really you know what the result's going to be because no one had ever really heard of Clay Shaw unless you were part of the research community when the film came out no one knew Clay Shaw was so you don't really know if he's going to get found guilty or, or, or you know, anything, because you've never heard of him. Um, so, so it sort of manages to have that suspense as well. 
where you don't, you're not quite sure what the outcome's going to be. It's just a great, great... I, mean, I think there's only one scene in the entire film. Uh, I mean, having seen it probably over 30 times, I would probably cut, and it's the scene where he's arguing with his wife. And I, and I understand why it's there, because it's to show the disruption that this is having on his home life. But in a film that's over three hours long, and I'm talking one, you know, three-minute scene that I would probably cut out, and I wouldn't really change much else of it. And the, the, just the ending is, is uh, you know, I think, is sort of summing up once he's finished, you know, questioning his witnesses is, is, is incredible. It's probably part of the reason why, why after that, I think after this he did Robin Hood, and then after that I don't think he's really done a decent film. Yeah. I think part of me just thinks that, as I said, I sort of said at the start, whatever you think, whatever you, if you think Lee Harvey Oswald did it, and Garrison was a nutcase, and that the film was factually incorrect on every level, you can, I think, put all of that to one side and go, well, this does all of the, all of the cinema bits really well. You know, it has, it has great actors. It's, you know, it's edited brilliantly. It's got great cinematography. Yeah, yeah, have to give it that. And I think it's a shame that arguments about authenticity were somehow lost in that process after that. And it might explain why he didn't win some Oscars. And some people just don't like the film because they believe Oswald did it, which I think is just a bit odd. You know, I don't like Parkland because it's a terrible film. I don't agree with it either, but it's just a terrible film. No, I think I think you've sum, summed up the, the trial scene. Uh... And, and the film itself really uh, excellent there. I think you're right. I think it, it's just a fantastic scene. And as you say, it's Costner's opportunity to really shine within within this film where he's been more, more of the anchor throughout. He hasn't really had the, the chance to shine. And as you say, it, it, not a lot of it's about Clay Shaw. It, it's really the majority of it is about you know the weaknesses and inconsistencies in the Warren Report and the case for... You know, the being a lone gun- gunman, it's it's more about that with Clay almost as an afterthought. That that really sh- shows in the film. Actually, it's like he it's all going so well for him in in the trial, but at no stage, as you say, does he really link Clay Shaw strongly enough because of you know the witnesses he's got and things like that not being the strongest. And I think um, it it's really good that it shows a bit like earlier we mentioned he sort of. He's doing really well, and as you say, he's persuading them. Even the judge looks a bit persuading. You can see Clay Shaw, this arrogant man who's been so cool throughout. He's starting to look a bit rattled at one stage, but then I think uh, Garrison sort of overplays his hand a little bit by, you know, really pointing the fingers at, you know, the, the, the government a lot more specific than he had previously, whereas he was being a lot more successful, it seemed to me, when he was just pointing out the weaknesses and I think I think as well as you say the performance by Costner is just you know really is breathtaking and apparently you know really well done that was unscripted that just happened as the performance you know part of the performance it just naturally occurred and I think it's so much more more powerful for that really Um, obviously I'm conscious of time and there's so much more we could discuss but I suppose I just want to say before we end, Martin, have you got any final thoughts or anything you'd like to add or, or, or sum up, really? I think, you know, all I would say on the film, I think I've, I've you know, probably said, um, you know, it, as a, as a, in terms of its cultural impact, it did lead 
to the Assassination Records Review Board, which, you know, started to uncover some of the hidden documents, you know, about the assassination. That board did discover things like the, you know, brain that's in the, you know, National Archives, which everyone thought was Kennedy's brain, isn't actually his brain. He's fairly important kind of major <laughs> stuff. And that was done because of that film, because despite all of the, all of the sort of, you know, kind of negative criticism leading up to the film, you know, it did really hit home. It, it sort of did exactly what it was supposed to do. And, you know, when I talk to people within the assassination community and you sort of meet people in Dallas, there's so many people that say that for them, you know, that was a starting point for them about why they started to get more and more interested into this assassination. And I think that's that's a huge thing, for better or worse, that the film has done. It has inspired lots of people to, you know, look into this subject and it has led to some fairly dramatic pieces of evidence that have been, you know, uncovered. For me, it's it's this huge story with an, an unbelievable cast of characters that every now and again I dip back into it and I learn something new. And, you know, I've been to Dallas and I've met some of those people. I've, you know, I've met a surgeon that tried to save Kennedy's life. You know, I met the guy that drove Oswald to work that morning. Wow. Yeah, and it's like, it's, it is, it's, it's, and you ask, you know, you ask these people, so it's a live investigation, you know, and, and, you know, some people, I think, you know, come at it from the angle of a really big picture of, well, you know, why Kennedy's foreign policy, and, well, and I, and I look at it as a, just a, just a kind of a miniature crime scene of what happened in Dee Plaza that day, and, you know, you kind of walk around. It's a, it's a, it's a mental place. I'm so pleased that they've never ever really changed it dramatically from how it was that day. And you know, people always say when they go there that oh, it's much smaller than I thought it was. And you know, this place is a bit odd, but it isn't. It's exactly as I thought it was because I looked at it a billion times. You know, I'd gone through the whole thing on Google, you know, fucking street view, <laughs> trying to work out where the best places were. And you get there, and it is like it's preserved. And you meet interesting people, you meet a bunch of weirdos who are so convinced of their view that they have no open mind left in this whatsoever. And I think whatever, I mean, I, you know, I know from my point of view, as someone who thinks, who thinks but is not convinced that Oswald didn't do it on his own, but there are things that I wish Oswald hadn't had done because it really annoys me that he did them because it doesn't help my case. <laughs> but likewise, if I was someone that thought Oswald did do it, then there's like a bunch of things that that I wish weren't there. And I wish really that people could talk about it in a way where they didn't get stressed, they didn't get dogmatic. And I also wish just the subject of it wasn't, the, the kind of pejorative term that it is, and I think one of the things that's happened, I never use the word conspiracy theory, really, because I think people start to think that you don't believe that people went to the moon and all of this sort of nonsense, you know. Yeah, great point. Um, whereas I just go back to what I said at the start, is that what you know is a fact 
is that the, the, the investigation was is incomplete and the truth hasn't been told. That's your starting point. And I think that you look at OS at this line, that not all conspiracies, there's not a thousand people there. That was filmed by the fucking BBC, not Abraham Zapruder, who was a dressmaker. And that wasn't even planned, what happened that day. And they managed to cover that up for 25 years. So when people say that these things can't happen, I kind of think, well, what planet are you on? But I think part of the problem with that discourse is, is that, is that the term is now pejorative. Yeah. And I think with that, the problem is, is that it does bring with it, unfortunately, some people who are attracted to not just the JFK assassination, but, you know, David, I mean, I've, I've sat in Dallas in bars and you talk to people and you think, yeah, you seem relatively normal. We can have a, a nice chat about this. And then they start being fucking lizards. <laughs> you know, I, I tell you what, mate, I'm off. I'm off. That wasn't me, but was it? No. <laughs> I mean, can we just talk about who the eyewitnesses were that saw him in the sixth floor? Can we just do that? Can we not go in? Not, can we not go away from that? Not go on to lizards. <laughs> can we not talk about the Illuminati, the Bilderberg, and, and any of that? Can we just do it as a crime scene? And sometimes you do meet people like that. You become friends with that, you know. Um, but I tell you, the weird thing is, some of the people that you meet who are parties who part who were there that day, I've met a bunch of people that were there that day, <laughs> is the effect it's had on those people. It, like if you t- talk to the guy who, who you know drove Oswald to work that day, who's been through a whole bunch of shit in in, in his life since, mm-hmm. these people have had their lives ruined, you know, because of, you have to remember that I think that these are people that didn't ask to play any part in this. That's a great point. And um, they're certainly not culpable for anything that happened, but they look they just look they look worn out. They look, you know, worn out from the whole thing. Sorry, I went on a bit then. No, it, 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 it was fantastic hearing your thoughts. I, I wish we could do it all night, to be honest. I, I just so enjoyed hearing your thoughts and your knowledge and, and your passion. All of that together, I feel I've learned so much from yourself and from Tony, and I've just really enjoyed it. So I'd like to thank you. Thank it was a Tony. Pleasure. Oh, Absolute pleasure. Uh, thank the listeners for listening. And my final thing would be to just to ask you if people are interested in more of your thoughts or your work, where can they, you know, hear, hear them or see them or read them? Uh, you could follow me on Twitter at 400 Blows, which is the number four, and then the word 100 Blows. It's, it's, <laughs> it's always hard to have conversations about um, kind of JFK over Twitter. <laughs> so. I mean, I, I mean, it's just not a format that, that's conducive to 140 characters. You, you're not wrong. Yeah. What will probably happen is someone will. What tends to happen is people will now tweet me with irrefutable evidence <laughs> of, uh, you know, Oswald's guilt or something like that. And it's like just, just if you believe that, great, great. You know, rather than trying to convince me. Or, and this is the, this is the the the, the, the way that the, the, it's almost like football. It's almost the, the same way that Liverpool fans are about Rodgers, is sometimes just listen to the other guy. Just, you know, obviously you know what you think, but 
try and understand what you know. Try and understand where the other person's coming from. Yeah. And I think, but there's a particular researcher that I know done a lot of stuff on Oswald in Mexico City. He's a lawyer in America. He always says there's nothing more beautiful than an open mind. I think that's the the only thing that I would sort of say to people, sort of take away from this is I don't study it because I want to know what happened. And I don't follow football because I need to know what happens. I enjoy just the the the, the ever evolving process that these things are. But I don't I don't need to have it. I don't need to have today a cast iron opinion on what's going to happen with you know Brendan Rodgers or whether Lee Harvey Oswald did it or not. I don't need to have that opinion. I think that's a great place to end it. You've you've, you've so much for people listening to ponder and so many interesting thoughts. Thanks once again to yourself, to Tony, and to the people who are listening. I'd just like to say I always value feedback, any film suggestions or anything like that. Please, uh, on Twitter, give me any suggestions at Joe Simpson at Wolf underscore tickets LFC or AI Movie Night at AI Movie Night. Thank you. That's not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Do not forget your dying king. Show this world that this is still a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. Nothing as long as you live will ever be more important. It's up to you. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.